Good morning. Our first case is Holly Kiera uh, versus uh, North Carolina DHHS at all. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm attorney Ralph Bryant, Jr. I am here from the Carteret County Bar, and I'm here on behalf of the uh, appellant, Halakiera Community Services. And just, just so you'll understand, the name sounds kind of complicated, but the name is a merge of the names of the daughters of the owners of the company, one being Halisa and the other one being Kiera. So when you add them together, it makes it, it, makes it a lot easier to say Halakiera Community Services. And I'm proud to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here in front of you on behalf of Halicare Community Services. My client, Dwaylon Whitley, is present here today. And we're here, Your Honors, on the appeal from a business court decision where the business court granted summary judgment for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services in a civil lawsuit that we, have fi that we filed alleging that the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services Program Integrity Division has acted arbitrarily when it placed my client on an on, on a audit called, called prepayment review. And um, so I, the, I think the, the first thing I want to make sure that the issue on this appeal is that the, that the business court judge in making his decision did not make his decision based on the law of the case. He made his decision based on certain factual determinations that he made based on the evidence that the, that the parties had submitted. And I, I would submit to your honors that this, that the idea of a jury, that the jury has to make the factual determinations is not just, a, not just a summary judgment rule that we all know by heart. It actually goes to the Constitution itself. There's a provision in our Constitution that says that facts in a civil action, facts shall be decided by a jury. In this case, uh, those facts were not decided by the jury. They were decided by the judge. And I think that's important because this is one of those cases that perspective is very important. Perspective from the point of view of, of not, just, um, not just the court, but perspective from the point of view of the everyday average citizen. I want to tell you a little bit about the case. My client, Halakera, started in about 2009. Halakera is a Medicaid Medicaid provider, uh, North Carolina. North Carolina gets money from the federal government. North Carolina agrees to provide certain Medicaid services. In this case, uh, my client, Halicara, provided what you call personal care services. They're very, <clears throat> I don't <clears throat> mean, to, mean to say it like this, but they're very rudimentary services. Personal care services are services with bathing, toileting, and things like that. So North Carolina gets the Medicaid money in it says, look, if these people are eligible and qualified, we will provide these personal care services. Instead of North Carolina providing the services itself, it actually contracts with certain agencies, in this case, my client, to provide these, to provide these Medicaid services. Normally what happens is, because the state understands that, you know, like in my case, my client has 700 employees. The state understands that that they're not going to be able to provide those services and pay these employees unless they can get reimbursed. And so what happens is the employee goes out into the client's home, the Medicaid consumer's home, Medicaid consumer signs a sheet saying that they were there for this period of time and during this period of time, 
with their signature and the employee's signature, the client gets that sheet back, takes that sheet and bills the state of North Carolina and says these personal care services were provided. Again, in the context of 700 employees now, my client bills through NC Tracks, which is, which is an electronic billing service North Carolina has. They bill through NC Tracks on a Friday, and normally within five days, that money appears in their account. Now, it's not just my client, but it happens for everybody, all the Medicaid consumers. If you take Medicaid, so I assume it happens for Duke and, and UNC Chapel Hill and all the, other, all, all the other Medicaid people that take Medicaid. Well, what happened here is, for some reason, in June of 2018, DHHS decided that it was no longer going to reimburse my client in that manner. Instead, they said, we're going to place you on something called prepayment review, which is known in the, which some people know in the industry as the death audit. What prepayment review says is that, is that instead of us, you billing this week for the 700 employees and then being paid within five days, what prepayment review says, you bill this week, and we're going to do an audit before we pay you, and you might never get paid, and certainly it's going to be another 30, 60 days before you get paid because it's a long process. So our contention is that prepayment review is a very drastic departure from the way that other providers have been treated. Our contention is that prepayment review is such a drastic departure that the state of North Carolina should have some guidelines and criteria for who it places on prepayment review. So in this instance, we, 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 we filed the lawsuit. We talked to, uh, we took depositions of, of the people that were identified, a gentleman named Patrick Piggott in particular. And we asked the question. I mean, the question my clients want to know, the question we would all want to know, why did you place Hallicare on prepayment review? And the answer was not forthcoming. Till today, sitting here now, till today, the answer is not forthcoming because all we got were certain facts that they said occurred. They said, well, Halicara had a couple of complaints. Okay, they had a couple of complaints. What are your criteria? Do you put everybody that's had a couple, uh, two complaints on prepayment review? No. Okay, well, what are your criteria, Mr. Piggott? Well, um, you know, I can just decide. The statute gives me the right to decide. And at the core of this, at the core of this, our contention is that's the problem. When, when, it, when a government official, even though the statute gives DHS the right to conduct prepayment, prepayment review, when a government official can conduct that, can engage in that type of conduct without any criteria whatsoever, to us, that's the core of the problem. That's where the arbitrary nature comes in and that's where the equal protection uh, uh, issue comes in. Now, there, there, there are certain, certain factual, um, there are certain factual determinations that was made that were made by the business court um, so w when we filed when we filed our response to the motion for summary judgment we tried to explain to the business court that DHHS has given at least three different versions of the process it uses to place people on prepayment review and that those because they gave at least three different versions of that process and, and my client was on a, a process that, that really didn't even appear anywhere else, that, uh, that the decision was arbitrary. And I, I'll talk to you about the three versions. First of all, we submitted a 2016 legislative report. 2016 legislative report reviewed uh, the personal care, the program integrity, reviewed their review of personal care services and prepayment review. And, and I hope you take the opportunity to read it. It's a pretty scathing report about 
what the state of North Carolina does in conducting prepayment review of personal care services providers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Medicaid, there are a lot of Medicaid providers, there's dental providers, there's, you know, medical providers, a lot of Medicaid providers, but they target personal care services providers. And anyhow, in that report, it specifically says North Carolina in 2012 contracted with IBM and that the decision to, to, to place a provider on prepayment review is based on an IBM-generated allegations package. Well, well, Patrick Pickett, the deciding official, disavowed that. I mean, he, he never talked about an allegations package, and then even to the extent that he talked about any type of data or anything like that, he disavowed anything having to do with that. So we, our contention, first of all, is that if there's a legislative report saying that there's a process involving an IBM allegation package, and, and significantly, the IBM allegations package says that it makes a recommendation about whether prepayment review or other disciplinary action should occur. In this case, we've never seen it. Uh, I think, I mean, because the opposing counsel stand here in a moment, but we've never seen, it, seen this IBM allegations package. So our contention is, is why is it that our client our client was placed on prepayment review, but not using this process that's described in the 2016 legislative report. Now, the business court <coughs> judge said that- for a point of clarification, it, um, for the, well, first of all, my, do I understand correctly, your, the claims you asserted were are equal protection and then substantive due yes. process, am I yes. right about that? That's correct, sir. And, and so I understand your theory to be, you would have to show that the government action is arbitrary and irrational. Yes. And yes, as I've heard you describe it, I, I just wanted to clarify, is your, uh, is your allegation that the selection of your client to pursue this action was, is the arbitrary and irrational decision, or is it the use of this particular, what you call the death audit, the prepayment review, is that what you say is arbitrary and irrational, or does it require a combination of all of that? The, the, it is the selection of my client for prepayment review. We, at this point, we're not, um, at this point, um, we're not challenging the process itself because really under the, under the regulations that has to go through an administrative process. At this point, we're, we're challenging the, the decision to select my client for the prepayment review process itself. And, and, and so, and so uh, my, the legislative report says that decision is made, is made based on an allegations report, uh, IBM allegations report. Well, we haven't seen it. The other thing is, uh, there's been some testimony that that decision is based, is based on a data, uh, a data review committee that meets bi-weekly, and that the decision is based, based on that. But Patrick Pickett, when I took his deposition, and, and I don't know if you read it, and I was uh, probably uncharacteristically aggressive with him during his deposition, but I just wanted to find out, I mean, what is your reason? And he, he said, no, it didn't. I, the decision was not made out of the data review committee. He said there's a third, there's another process, the second process, because he didn't even talk about the IBM uh, allegation package. He, he described a second process where, where an investigator can come into his office, sit down and talk to him, and he can decide based on the statute that, say, that says you can place somebody on a prepaint review for, for a data analysis. He says that gives me the authority to decide. And so my question to him is what criteria, because you know everybody, a lot of, everybody has complaints, right? Everybody has paybacks. So why is it that, what are the criteria you use to decide that I'm going to put this provider on prepayment review and not another provider? And his response was, I have the flexibility. The statute gives me the flexibility. Not once did he say, did, did he provide some type of 
some type of criteria. Now, once they say, well, anybody that has complaints of over $30,000 in a year, we place on prepayment review. Anybody who has, you know, aberrant billing data and describe what is aberrant about the billing data, he, it's just none of that. It's just I have the flexibility to do it. So and suppose the, the government, in an effort to combat fraud in this industry, said we're going to essentially have a lottery we're just of all the providers, we're going to randomly select for an audit a group of uh, the providers. And once we do that, they'll be put into prepayment review, sort of the death audit. Do you think that approach would be unconstitutional if the government tr used that approach? Um, I see. I, I think it would. I think it would, John. And I think it, if, if the random selection was Duke Health, I think everybody would agree it was unconstitutional. In this case, these people, the people that are selected are personal care service provider who don't have any particular political clout, they don't have any wealth. This business was created by a couple of young, young college roommates from two or three clients to one of the largest companies, probably largest home health company by a, by a North Carolina company in the state. They're so large. I agree with you about that, but that, that's making a different argument, I think, than okay. what I, because what I was getting is it would be irrational for the government. I mean, wouldn't it be rational to say we're going to have a random selection of providers that are going to go into this sort of prepayment audit at any given time, and it's just sort of a rolling thing to search for fraud? So what I hear you saying is okay. it's not the selection of your client for the audit uh, itself that's irrational. It's that your client was targeted for some impermissible reason, and that's what made it arbitrary or irrational. Is that... Am I understanding that correctly? Well, Your Honor, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, I, I think they probably, probably were targeted, you know, but that's not what I'm trying to say because what I'm trying to say is that when you have a, when you have a government official that can make that decision without any criteria, like there's no way to check behind him to see why he did or how he did other people, targeting could occur. I mean, it's very dangerous. Targeting could occur. Um, outside criminal forces could get to him and say, yeah, let's do this. There could be a provider. I mean, for all, if I can just say this, for all we know, somebody can make a phone call to certain people within program integrity and say, hey, this guy's taking all my clients. Can you do something about it? So right now, that's the kind of thing that could be happening. And so I'm not, I'm not here to allege that that is happening. I'm here to say that anytime you have, you have decision makers that have no criteria, and you can't go back and check why they did it and how they treat other people. I'm here to say it's dangerous and it's, arbi it's arbitrary. I, I hope I answered your question. I'm not trying to avo avoid it, but I hope I answered your question. And, Counsel, why, why isn't the argument uh, that there's lack of standards, lack of criteria, why isn't that a better suited argument for OAH and the APA? Well, Your, your Honor, um, the statute, 10, 10C7, specifically states that that a provider cannot challenge the decision to place the provider on prepayment review at OAH. It specifically states that. So that's a decision, that, that is an argument that can't be made at, at OAH. And even though there are some OAH decisions that, there, there's some earlier decisions that, that address that, the statute, I guess it was amended, but we can't even challenge that at OAH. Okay. Um, uh, I would say, Your Honor, at, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, my client is uh, it just, you know, North Carolina home, homegrown, you know, came out of uh, Goldsboro, projects of Goldsboro, 
was educated in North Carolina, started a company, and, um, and it grew, and it grew, and then one day he gets a letter saying, you're gonna be on prepaying review, and the reason is data analytics and aberrant billing data, uh, and aberrant billing. And I, I, would, I would, for perspective, I, can, I just tried to imagine, you know, what I've tried to do in my life with, with building a business, whatever, what my friends have tried to do, what would a, if there was somebody on the jury who was an electrician who had a business for 10 years or somebody had a restaurant, if they got a letter saying, okay, we're gonna put you in disciplinary action and you can't continue to do your business, and it says the reason is data analysis and aberrant billing, who's gonna be okay with that? I mean, how can that possibly be enough? If you're gonna do that, just tell us why. And in this instance, in this instance, it was, it was very frustrating for me to not be able to get an answer from this state government that I, born and raised in North Carolina, that I care about and I love. It's very uh, frustrating for me to not get a clear answer. And, and I, I'll say to you, I think it's very dangerous. I hope that, um, I know my client, you know, they're not, they're not a big company, they're not, you know, Duke Health or anybody else. So it's, we, and we're addressing some very important constitutional issues regarding the limits of state power and what is and what is not arbitrary. So I hope as you, as you think through this and, and decide, I hope that somehow or another you can kind of look from the perspective of what, what if this was Duke Health? What if, what if this was some other major company and some people with some clout and, 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 and money and then make your decision based on that because the perspective is going to be very important because this is a very important decision. And I, and I believe that if I could get in front of a jury with this case, I think the members of the community, the ones that I know, uh, they would, I mean, they would be very upset that, that the state of North Carolina cannot tell, will not tell my clients the reason why. It's not a question of what are the facts. The question is what are the criteria you apply those facts to. And at this point, we haven't gotten that. And, and I need to reserve some time. Are there any, are there any, any questions for me? Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FLE. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. My name is Mary Beth Reed from the Department of Justice, and I represent the Department of Health and Human Services. The question before this court is whether Halakiera has met its burden in showing that the decision to place it on prepayment review was somehow irrational or arbitrary under rational basis review. The answer to that question is undoubtedly no. The department here, in order to help prevent Medicaid waste and abuse, relied on valid forms of documentation. Those included, one, consumer complaints, suggesting that Halakiera was overbilling, two, post-payment audits, confirming that in fact Halakiera had on occasion in the past overcharged Medicaid, and three, data analysis comparing Halakiera to similarly sized providers. Based on all of this information together, the business court was correct in granting summary judgment to the department on both of Halakiera's state constitutional claims. What about your friend's argument that, 
his assertion was there's no evidence of any kind of standard that the government was applying. If the government makes decisions without any standard or any basis to do so, that by definition has to be arbitrary. So what's your response to that? Your Honor, I would point this court to the statute itself, which is in section 108C7, specifically looking at subsection A. That statute provides four explicit grounds that allows the department to place a provider on prepayment review. Two of those grounds were relied on here, which included identification of aberrant billing practices, as well as data analysis. And the statute is written, uh, the General Assembly gave the department discretion when it said that a provider may be placed on prepayment review. So it granted that discretion to the department in creating the statute by writing it that way. Can I, can I just follow up on that? Because as I understand the argument here, the statute sets out the grounds, but the question is what standards, what criteria, what, what, how are you measuring those grounds in order to decide to place some providers on prepayment review and not others? Correct, Your Honor. And so the grounds relied on here are that identification of aberrant billing practices, which came from, there were several different consumer complaints that had alleged that there were billing practice issues within Halakira, and then there were post-payment audits that were completed that revealed that, in fact, Halakira had overcharged on a number of different occasions. And so using that information, there were you know, there was past evidence that the department relied on in making its decision. Right, those are the grounds. But I think the, the issue is, are there any standards? So how many, um, you know, out of 700 employees and over, you know, what relevant period of time, how many d does the department make clear to people um, how many, uh, you, you've, I think you've rephrased them as aberrant billing practices, but how many times did they make a mistake that they have to be, that they have to reimburse, you know, is it is is two times enough, or should it be twenty times? Like, what is the, is it one percent of their billing? Is it ten percent of their billing? Like, what are the standards by which you decide? Okay, this is these. I, I hear what the grounds are, but when does the evidence um, for for those grounds being met high enough to then justify prepayment review? I think that's the, as I understand the argument, that's what they're saying, that the government doesn't have any standards to clarify that. I understand, Your Honor, and I don't think specific numbers in terms of how many post-payment audits are required here, again, based on the way that the statute was written, it allows the department, based on those four different factors, to place a provider on prepayment review, and so the department doesn't have exact quotas in terms of the numbers it'll look at. And again, part of that is because of the different reasons for which a provider can be placed on prepayment review, they aren't all numerical. So for example, credible allegations of fraud, that's gonna look different in each case as to what evidence the department's reviewing. Another one of those grounds is failure of the provider to timely respond to a request for documentation made by the department. And so inherently, the type of evidence the department is reviewing when it's trying to decide whether prepayment review is appropriate is going to be different in every case. Generally, the department has a process whereby something flags a provider. There might be some kind of red flag from a different variety of reasons. They talk about this within the department. A number of people are working on the case. They come to an initial decision. Additional information is collected about the provider, and here that included the data analysis that I mentioned previously, and then the associate director makes that final decision. And again, I think under rational basis review here, what we're looking for is you know, is there a conceivable reason under which this 
uh, decision here is reasonable, and the department has met that standard here. Is your, is your position essentially that as long as there's evidence of one of the grounds in the statute for prepayment review that the, the action can't be or arbitrary, capricious? I believe so, Your Honor, yes. Can I, can I follow up on Justice Earl's question and just want to make sure I understand. What, what is a credible allegation of fraud? Sure, Your Honor. Uh, so I think that would look deeper into, um, and again, there's different types of examples of what the department might flag for this. Um, for example, if there were, uh, and again, the department does its own investigations, and I think that's where the, the definition of credible is going to be coming from. Is the So you start out with the consumer complaints of someone suggesting the department has a hotline where they can call in, and so someone calls suggesting there might be an issue. And so if the department really looked into this and there was a credible allegation of fraud, for example, here, Halakira had some allegations related to unlicensed business offices, um, if there were credible allegations related to, you know, um, I don't know, you know, improper billing practices, stealing money from someone, something of that nature. But again, that ground is not one of the ones relied on here, and so okay. that isn't relevant to the decision for whether the decision to place Alakira on prepayment review is reasonable. Right. No, I understand. I, I was going to get to that, but I, I, just going through the statute, uh, where is credible allegation of fraud defined in the statute or rule? I don't believe uh, it is in the statute, Your Honor. Is, is there a rule that defines it? Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Has, has uh, the department promulgated a rule regarding the statute? I'm unaware of one, Your Honor. And uh, what is an, um, an aberrant billing practice? Uh, Your Honor, the department has interpreted that to include, again, looking into, uh, looking into the billing practices of the different providers. So for example, the post payment audit, I think is a good example of what aberrant billing practices can look like where on occasion the providers have overcharged Medicaid. And is that defined anywhere by rule or statute? Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Thank you. I'd also- One more follow up question along this line. So suppose you have a situation where the government determines that one of the statutory criteria is met. Is it your position that because of the discretion that's afforded there, there's no way that a government agent, a regulator, could then act in an arbitrary or irrational way in choosing to begin an investigation? Is that, is that what you think that discretion means? Your and Honor, if not, look, what, in what scenario would a regulator be acting ar arbitrarily or irrationally in doing so? Sure, Your Honor. I think uh, the use of discretion itself is not the problem. If there was an abuse of that discretion, there would be an issue. But here we have no evidence in the record of an abuse of discretion. And again, by the time we're at the summary judgment stage, we've gone through discovery and there is no evidence in the record that there was any form of abuse of discretion by Associate Director Piggott or any other department employee, which is what's required under this standard. I'd like to focus a little bit too exactly on what prepayment review uh, entails and requires. Opposing counsel mentioned it as the death audit, but I don't believe uh, that is appropriate. Um, prepayment review is a tool that department has at its disposal to be able to accomplish its goal of investigating Medicaid waste and abuse. 
Specifically, there's an office within the department known as the Office of Compliance and Program Integrity, and its purpose is indeed to try and reduce uh, issues with billing. So their job is to make sure that these providers are checking all of the boxes, providing all of the information necessary to make sure that Medicaid beneficiaries are being served well. Is going to subsection E, is there any evidence in the record about how many businesses subject to prepayment audit survive the three months? As, as a matter of businesses still open, survive the three months of um, clean reporting? Uh, I'm not aware of the exact percentage, Your Honor. I believe the 2016 legislative report might reference uh, some number. Again, that's also from 2016, and since then the department has made changes, including in the way that it's even structured, and so I can't speak to the current percentages for prepayment review. So when you, when you disagree with the use of the term death audit, you don't have a, a, a citation to point me to to say this isn't, doesn't doom business. I don't have a citation for that, Your Honor, but I would contest the point of the payment process in particular. So proce uh, claims are required under prepayment review to be paid within 20, or to be processed within 20 days. And so assuming those claims are adequately substantiated, payment is made within that 20-day period. And so it is not a drastic difference from the typical five-day payment process that opposing counsel mentioned earlier. And again, here, I think it's worth noting that the accuracy rate for a provider to be removed from prepayment review, excuse me, is 70% over three consecutive months. Halakiera here in the month of July had an accuracy of 10.6% and in August of 16.1%. And so part of the issue that there was an issue in funding here was because that percentage was so low and so many of their claims were not adequately substantiated. Assuming a provider is providing all of the documentation necessary, they receive the money for that claims in a timely manner. But, but that information wasn't part of the decision to put them into prepayment review, which is what they're alleging was the decision that's arbitrary, right? Correct, Your Honor. And it, it, I'm just, uh, it, it confuses me that you can have these numerical standards for when someone can get off of prepayment review, but you don't have numerical standards for some, when someone gets onto prepayment review. A and presumably there are other providers who occasionally have to pay back because they've um, uh, not billed properly, and other providers who get complaints. So how does the department, if it, it you said there's no evidence of an abuse of discretion, I'm just w wondering what would be evidence of abuse of discretion if the department doesn't have any standards to decide, you know, supplier A has three complaints, we're gonna do prepayment review, supplier B, provider B has three complaints, but we're not gonna do prepayment review? Uh, first, Your Honor, I guess I would say related to you know, the, the death audit or claims more broadly about prepayment review in general, that would be more geared towards a facial challenge. And here we're only looking at the as-applied challenge for Halakiera. And in particular, again, I think the question here is, was there a reasonable decision made by the department in terms of placing Halakira on prepayment review. And I think that decision here was reasonable. Numerous department employees confirmed in their deposition testimony the reasons that Halakira was placed on prepayment review. 
Again, those included those audits, consumer complaints, and data analysis that compared Halakira to similarly sized providers. And based on all of that information together, it was reasonable to place Halakira on prepayment review. And under the rational basis standard, I do believe that is enough here. Um, and specifically, it's a worth noting under the substantive due process claim and equal protection claim that Halakir has the burden under both of these to show that somehow that decision was irrational or arbitrary and they have not met that standard here. Uh, I'd like to address in particular uh, in the briefs Halakir tries to contend that there's inconsistency in the testimony between department employees and I think that's reading the uh, deposition testimony out of context. Rather, both of the department employees at issue, both the associate director Piggott and employee Cox, confirm that indeed data analysis was used as well as again that prior investigation that looked at those consumer complaints and then went further and completed those post-payment audits showing that on occasion Halakira had overcharged Medicaid. I'll briefly turn to the equal protection claim where again under rational basis Halakira has the burden to show one that it was not similarly or excuse me one that it was treated differently from similarly situated providers and two that that disparate treatment was not rationally related to a legitimate government interest and under this standard a provider is similarly situated if they are alike in all relevant respects but there is no evidence in the record that Halakira can point to of another provider who was alike in all relevant respects who was not placed on prepayment review. We have no evidence of another provider going through these same issues and having these same red flags as Halakira. And so they have not met that burden here. And for reasons similar to the uh, substantive due process claim, uh, they cannot show that it was not rationally related to a legitimate government interest. If there are no further questions, I'll briefly conclude. Oops. My apologies, Your Honor. I would just like to say for the earlier question um, regarding the uh, definition of credible allegation of fraud that is defined in a federal statute or federal regulation, my apologies, which is 42 CFR. 455.2. So the definition for credible allegation of fraud is explicitly stated there. Um, so the business court was correct. But just, uh, just to be clear, yes. there, there is no definition for aberrant billing practices. Or is that included in that federal regulation? Um, to my knowledge, I, I don't happen to have it in front of me, Your Honor, so I can't speak to that. Um, to my knowledge, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, are there any further questions on that point? All right, so the business court was correct here to grant summary judgment dismissing both of Halakira's constitutional claims. Halakira has not met its burden in proving that the department's decision was unconstitutional, and for these reasons, we request that this court affirm the business court decision. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court. I believe the court has identified the very issues with this process 
um, even outlined by opposing counsel by stating that one of the stated reasons for placing Holly Care on prepayment reviews was the existence of complaints, but notably absent from the statute as a basis for placing a provider on prepayment review is the existence of complaints. Particularly a complaint is just an allegation that hasn't been proven or anything of that nature, but yet DHHS and Mr. Pickett unilaterally decided, well, if we have complaints, that's a basis we can play, uh, place you on prepayment review. I think Justice Earls, you're correct in looking at the statute. This statute lends itself to further interpretation. Um, as Justice Berger pointed out, there's no definition for um, aberrant billing. Uh, in fact, the statute on its face lends itself to, uh, particularly in that respect, lends itself to and invites further definition. For example, credi credible allegation of fraud. Well, that is defined in the CFR. It actually is an indicia, uh, uh, allegation that has an indicia of reliability, I believe, from memory. Um, but aberrant billing practices, well, it's not just aberrant billing practices. That part is continued left off by the state. It's aberrant billing practices um, that are found as a result of an investigation. That makes sense. But then it says data analysis performed the department. No context. Data analysis that demonstrates what? Data analysis that uh, states what, that makes what kind of allegation. That's completely absent from the statute. So I agree in some respects there may be a facial problem uh, with the statute, but I think you don't have to make a facial challenge because as applied here, I think uh, there could be, uh, again, an invitation from the legislature to create guidelines and standards. So what, what, what kind of aberrant, um, what kind of data analysis? Well, it depends. And if we have a standard, that can be applied. The problem here is that there were no standards to be applied um, written otherwise, even Mr. Piggott testifying that he consistently routinely uh, applied the same standard in every case. In fact, his testimony was that uh, we usually use this data um, analytics team, but if there's a prior uh, complaint, we can go through this whole other process. And that's not in the rules, that's not in the statutes, that's not in any internal policy. That's what he created individually. And the next person might create a different standard, and the next person might create a different standard. There's no consistency, therefore it's by definition arbitrary. Um, in the addition, Justice Berger, I believe you talked about, um, had a question about the interpretation. Um, I think another issue is even had uh, DHHS attempted to interpret what the meaning of uh, aberrant billing or credible allegation or some of these other terms are, uh, those would not be binding because they didn't go through the rulemaking process. So I think there's a problem, not only that you correctly pointed out that it's not in the rules, it's problematic. Even if it wasn't in the rules, it could have at least been an internal policy. That's absent here. Well, in, in the absence of guidance from a statute or a rule, um, can we review the actions of a, um, um, of, of the supervisor here, of the department here, and, and conclude that it's reasonable? Is, is that a permissible conclusion in the absence of that type of guidance from the legislature? I think the issue becomes it's not whether the challenge that's being made right here is different from whether it's um, reasonable or goodwill or not, and the case law makes it clear. If you could have a good reason or bad reason, that's not the issue, is that is it arbitrary? So it could be a good reason, but is it arbitrary? Are there any guidelines? If you say, uh, I place provider A on prepayment review, um, and, I, uh, and I have good reason here, 
and I place provider B on premium review and I have different reasons here, that becomes a problem. So the question is not whether the reasons are uh, adequate in the um, eyes of the judiciary. The question is, is it arbitrary? And if it, if it is, then it offends the North Carolina Constitution. Um, I will also uh, say to Justice Deitch, you had the um, question about a random audit. You might have the IRS, you might have you know, any number of entities, but they are random audits. I think what's different is that um, this goes to the idea of it, this being the death audit. It is, in effect, an adverse action. It is a taking in a way. So it's not an audit we come in and, you know, if it's random, then we can say that that's sufficient because if you, uh, the way that it impacts the business, I think is material in that capacity. So I would say that even if it was random, then it still could be challenged constitutionally because of the effect that it has on businesses. What, what about the uh, point made by opposing counsel that under the statute, um, payment claims have to be processed within 20 calendar days? Uh, correct. So, so uh, it, there is a need for the payments to be processed under in, in 20 days. However, again, that is a departure um, than the normal payment process. Uh, but that is normally the funds are paid and it's automatic the entire billing amount. But in this particular case, payments are, are, are paid, but not every payment. It's only the payment that this third party has deemed to be a clean claim, which again, that can be challenged in OAH later. But if that third party, CCME, decides that's not a clean claim, then that is not a payment. So the idea that, well, if you did what you're supposed to do, then you're gonna get your money, well, that assumes that CCME is infallible, but they're not. And in fact, there's a financial incentive. They are paid a percentage um, based on claims they deny. So they have a process that induces the third party to find ways to deny claims because they have the flat fee, but they also have, you get a percentage of the claims you deny. So I, I believe that, that makes that process inherently um, muddies the water as far as whether the 20 days makes it uh, not intrusive to the provider. With respect to your equal protection claim, uh, opposing counsel argued that you haven't shown that um, you were treated different, differently from a similarly situated provider. Um, how do you respond to that? So in, in a couple fashions, um, one, the, the courts have identified that you can have a class of one. And so I think in that respects, that equal protection argument is intertwined with the arbitrary argument because if you treat me uh, one particular way for an unannounced reason, and that's different than others, so I don't think there needs to be an exact comparator when you say you're a class of one. And on the other side, there's also the issue that the reason there are no specific comparators identified is because the department didn't have any. Um, uh, Ms. Cox's testimony was that she didn't have the specific peer information. So it appears the department made the um, decision without identifying comparators. Um, and so when the- But the uh, burden is on you, correct? Correct. Uh, and the only way we can identify those comparators would be, well, and, and I will say, there is information not to uh, all the sp specific factors because those were not identified, but there was admissions by DHHS that other people receive um, complaints. 
there was uh, admissions by DHHS that other providers have to pay back. In fact, um, a quote from Mr. Piggott's uh, testimony, he said that that is, at least that that was um, normal, not, not abnormal. Um, and so there are other providers that have complaints. There are other providers that have paid funds back. And of course there are, so do we say there's a uh, provider B that had two tentative overpayments, which is what was identified in the affidavit by Ms. Um, Lukosius, was that at that point when she met with Piggott in October, what she provided him was data from of two tentative overpayments, which is not a final overpayment determination, but two tentative overpayment determinations, and that was sufficient for him. So are there exactly laid out this number of overpayments, this number of investigations, this number of complaints, that is not in the correct record, but again, to allow the government to succeed because they are unaware of uh, any other specific providers, I think lends itself to the our argument that we as a class of one have been treated differently than others. As I understand the record, the um, Medicaid investigations division twice declined to prosecute um, and I'm curious from your perspective how that relates to our decision about whether or not the initial decision to put you on prepayment review was arbitrary. I think it has some bearing. I'll admit there's, it, it would have more bearing if one of the grounds was that there was a credible allegation of fraud and that was not a basis. Um, but it does go to the what alleged and is argued sufficiently in the brief that the whole purpose of prepayment review is to prevent fraud. And twice um, the agency referred the case to MID and it was rejected. So I think it undercuts the notion that, well, what we have to do is we had to get this provider and clearly, you know, this post hoc argument that we found a lot of issues during prepayment review, but still MID said it wasn't fraud. So finally, um, I think the, the idea again is that these set of statutes lend themselves to a need for interpretation. DHHS failed to provide any kind of rule to provide guidance and left it solely to the discretion of the investigator. And to the extent, um, and I, get, I disagree and the record will show that there was plenty of uh, discrepancies within the testimony of the basis for placing Holly Care on prepayment review. Um, whether or not he looked at data analysis, when the data analysis was produced. Um, Ms. Cox testified that she had someone looking at the statutory definition and whether the statute was met in June, on June 1st of 2018 when he already had made the decision in October of 2017. And so I think there are a lot of fundamental discrepancies and that's the problem. If you don't have any guidelines, um, I think if you, if you don't have any guidelines, then these kind of decisions cannot be challenged. And so if you find a, de a decision that can't be challenged by any kind of metrics, that you can't provide any kind of jury instructions regarding that, if you find X, Y, and Z, then you must rule for the plaintiff, then that's, a, that's a pretty much an indicator that you have an arbitrary decision by the government. Thank you. Counsel? All right.